It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome along to Eurosport's very own snooker podcast, The Break, with me, Andy Goldstein. Yes, we're back just in time for the World Snooker Championship qualifiers. And over the next few weeks, we'll be building up to the main event in Sheffield, following it all the way through to its conclusion. And as usual, you'll be able to download this and other episodes from your favourite podcast platforms. Coming up a bit later in the podcast, I'll be catching up with defending champion of the world, Ronnie O'Sullivan. But joining me, first of all, we have two of the finest snooker commentators in the business, and that's how they asked to be introduced, Neil Folds and Philip Studd. Boys, how are you? How excited are you about the World Championship? Phil, I'll start with you, because, of course, you've been there since Joe Davis was playing, so you must be very excited about this one. <laughs> Even before that. Yeah, I certainly feel that old. Uh, Very excited. Yeah. I mean, every year it feels as though the competition is even more intense than the year before. And I think there are so many players who've impressed this season who you feel have got the credentials to lift the title. We've just seen Neil Robertson produce one of the greatest exhibitions of snooker to see off Ronnie O'Sullivan in the Tour Championship final, even though Sullivan said afterwards that he couldn't compete with the level that Robertson produced. We know that he's often a favourite when he arrives in Sheffield, and yet he has actually underachieved since he won it over 10 years ago. He's only been in one semi-final. I feel as though this could finally be the year that he cracks it again. He seems to be in a good headspace as well, so I think certainly he would be my pick right now. But you look at Judd Trump, who's had another outstanding year, threatening to break his own records of the number of titles he's won in a single season. Mark Selby has come back to form in a big way. And there are plenty of others who are knocking on the door. Mark Allen, certainly overdue a really good run. I think it's going to be tremendously exciting. And there are at least half a dozen players who you could make a very legitimate case, have a chance to lift the title. Okay. Well, listen, because we've got just over a week until the main event, and of course, we don't know who's qualified. We don't know how the draw is going to look. I thought I'd ramp up the excitement levels and discuss what it is that makes the Snooker World Championship so special. So, Fulte, I'll start with you. You've played there. You've managed to get down to the one table set up as well. Can you put your finger on just what makes the Crucible so special? Well, it's quite daunting. I think, I mean, I had been, I'd already, when I first played there in 1984, I'd already been there. 1979, I went there as a, as a youngster. Um, we were watching John Virgo play, and um, he was living in London at the time. And we'd kind of, I'd been there and I knew how different a venue it was. And, I think you, there's two ways it can go. You can be overawed by the place or you can find it a little bit numbing playing there. It's a strange old place, very, very tight. And um, 
there's hardly any room to manoeuvre. And, and many a, a very good player, you know, hasn't got, um, got a win under his belt straight away. I mean, all of the eight players in the Tour Championship had lost very first match at the Crucible, including O'Sullivan, Higgins, you name it, all the big hitters, Trump, they all went there and lost first time. So the place takes a, get a, bit in, a little bit of getting used to, and you kind of grow to love the venue, I think. Everyone's got good memories there and bad memories there. As long as the good ones outweigh the bad ones, I think you're okay. Uh, Phil, listen, a lot of people, of course, know you as um, a commentator in our wonderful sport, but what people don't know, of, of course, about you is you were beat by Walter Lindrum in the early 20s at the Crucible. So you've been, you've been on both sides of the fence. What makes it so special for you as a commentator turning up at this incredible theatre, walking through those doors and then making your way through to the commentary box? Why does it feel like no other venue in the snooker calendar? I think because the World Championship is pinnacle of our sport and it's just such a rich history of memories, isn't it? All the way back to the beginning when John Spencer won the title, the epic matches that we've seen down the years there. The unique atmosphere, I think, above all, is what makes the Crucible Theatre special. I mean, on the face of it, it's not a venue that's designed for snooker, clearly, is it? It's a theatre. It's arguably too small. It's too cramped. There aren't really enough, you know, there's not really enough space for two tables. Um, but that is precisely why it is so special, because you get that claustrophobic atmosphere. You know, the players in the front row can reach out and touch the players. That's how close they are to the action. And you feel that atmosphere that they generate. It's unlike any other venue in the sport. And so the oddity of the Crucible is what makes it so unique. and. That's why everyone dreams of first playing there and also then of excelling there. And I think that's the reason that it is so special and it just never disappoints. Every year we see the most incredible matches. Last year's World Championship, which was clearly played in very unusual circumstances much later in the year, largely without an audience, even though we did have some fans right at the beginning and right at the end. but. There was still the same drama, the same tension, even in the absence of a crowd. The players still felt the heat. They still missed balls they wouldn't normally miss. And none of that was lost, even though we were living in very unusual times. So, yeah, it is, it is a venue like no other, and it has created tension and drama like no other event can match in the calendar. And Neil, it does affect players completely differently. Some absolutely hate it. They get so nervous and some thrive on it. How did it affect you as a young player coming through? Well, I, I mean, look, I was look, quite lucky. I played, I played Alex Higgins in my very first um, appearance there and, and managed to beat him. It was quite daunting. Um, maybe that was a bit of a one-off. I didn't play so well in the next match after that. Lost to Doug Mountjoy, who, of course, we lost very recently, sadly. Um, but I enjoyed it. I th as I say, I think I'd, the fact that I'd been there before helped me. Um, and uh, I, it was a great, it's a great venue. There's something very special about the, the two and a half weeks at Sheffield. Uh, you know, obviously we're in different times right now, but just the people you meet that, you know, everyone is speaking about the snooker. Sheffield's a very proud uh, sort of owner of, of the, the World Championship, if you like, the Crucible Theatre. So it's a very special time to be around and it makes you feel good being up there. You know, there is a lot of people on the stage door and I guess for people like Monty O'Sullivan and one or two others, it must be difficult. You can't just walk in and out freely. There's always someone wants a piece of the action for the big hitters. But, you know, for some people, they enjoy all that. It's a wonderful tournament. And the, what's nice about it is, even though in 2020, 
It was a different year because of the pandemic. It was played in August, mostly in a heat wave. You know, it, not much else has changed. It's two and a half weeks. You know the format. You know the champion's going to be, appear on the first day, uh, and he's got to get through in the first day. You know, the way it's, it, it, it uh, pans out every year is kind of the same, and that's the nice thing about it, really, I'd say. Bill, I, um, I never was lucky enough to go to the Crucible as a kid, and uh, the first time I went, incredibly, it was only about 10 years ago, but, but when I went, I felt like a kid. I was lucky enough to, of course, go on to, to the floor where the main snooker table is. And I walked around the table and I sat in the player's seats and I stood where Dennis Taylor did the little hand wiggle and I stood where Davis, Mr. Black from. And um, it, it just has that feel for my money. Like, you, you know, you're the, the Mecca. It's like the Wembley Stadium of snooker. And I would imagine for every single person that's lucky enough to get a ticket to actually go and watch snooker inside, it's a very similar feeling. Can you remember, as a commentator, you'd, of course, watch snooker growing up. You'd have watched snooker coming live from the Crucible. Can you remember, as a commentator, what it was like for you the first time you were lucky enough to commentate on a game in there? Absolutely incredible. Um, the thing that struck me was just how tiny it was. I mean, I think on television, you get, you get a skewed view of the reality. Um, when you're actually there, particularly in the early rounds where you have the dividing curtain, you... you suddenly realized just how incredibly cramped it is. I mentioned claustrophobic earlier, and it really is. I mean, there's barely any space for the players to play their shots when that curtain is in position. And as I say, it just creates a tremendous amount of, of drama just with the aesthetics of the building, never mind the actual snooker. But yeah, I can remember walking in for the first time, and it was like living the dream because for years... I'd been following all of these players on television. First match I ever watched was the 82 semi-final between Alex Higgins and Jimmy White. I'm sure I wasn't alone in, in watching that match and, and being seduced by the sport because they played a brand of snooker which was unusual back then. It was just uh, a blitz of scoring, both of them playing at 100 miles an hour, and it was absolutely captivating. And then to walk into the arena, the first tournament that I covered was in 2002, the year that Peter Ebden denied Stephen Hendry an eighth world title. And I remember the first person I interviewed was Jimmy White, who I had admired, of course, growing up as, as many, many snooker fans have down the years. And I mean, I could barely hold my microphone still while I was interviewing him because I was, I was so nervous and excited to be there and, and having to pinch myself that something that I'd always loved and followed on television, I was now actually working at and being able to experience firsthand. And I'll never forget how that felt. But all these years later, nearly 20 years after I covered my first world championship, that excitement, that anticipation, the hairs on the back of the neck standing up on that first morning when the defending champion walks out to begin his title defence, it's still just as riveting and as exciting as it was back then. Uh, Fawlty, I've just mentioned, of course, Dennis Taylor's wonderful victory against Steve Davis in 1985, possibly the most famous moment in snooker history, but if I was to put you under the spotlight now, what snooker matches from the Crucible, for your money, jump off the page? I mean, we, we, the, one of the finals that doesn't get mentioned very much is it's the year that Peter Ebden won in 2002 when he won by the odd frame. You know, the finals that go all the way to the, to the last few shots are rare. And I do remember Ebden, he was one of the players, who's retired now, who had a really good temperament, what we call bodily and all of that. And, you know, when push came to shove, he was able to get over the line against Hendry in that final. 
Um, so that's one. It doesn't get mentioned for some reason, but it was a, a captivating final. It wasn't like 85, but it was a, a decider. And, and I still go back to what happened last year. I mean, it's been mentioned enough, but, you know, the, um, the, the day of the, the semifinals, which were actually on a Friday, they finished this year when we had the, the Karen Wilson win, you know, against Anthony McGill. That was quite an incredible game of snooker. The last frame was mind-numbing, really. It's unbelievable. And then it was followed up by the wonderful win for, for Ronnie O'Sullivan against you know, Mark Selby. Not everything has to be, you don't always have to go back many, many years into nostalgia. Some of the great things can be more recently. And clearly, you know, that day was, was something very special. And talking of special, um, there's quite a few players that could make a bit of history for so many different reasons this season. Phil, you've got, of course, um, Ronnie O'Sullivan looking for a record equal in seventh world title. You've got John Higgins and Mark Williams looking to become the oldest ever Crucible world champion. You've got players like Judd looking for his second. You've got Murphy looking for his second as well. You've got Neil Robertson again, who's been one of the form players of the season, incredibly still only on one world title. What story do you think, when we look back at this year's World Championship, what story will jump off the page, will be shining for you? Who's your money on? Crikey. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I do think that Neil Robertson, self-evident, but he is hugely overdue a really deep run. Um, So often of late, he's gone into the championship as many people's favourite. I remember when he comfortably beat Sean Murphy a couple of seasons back. Murphy said afterwards, uh, get the engravers ready now because, you know, the title's his. And, of course, he then went on to lose to John Higgins in the next round. Uh, it, it, it's a curiosity to me that he hasn't done more in Sheffield since winning it back in 2010. But given the way he's playing in the build-up and given that he does seem mentally to be in a much better place because... He's revealed recently that he's been feeling very homesick. He hadn't seen his family for the best part of two years. I gather that his father, Ian, was able to fly over and see him, and that was a surprise. It was something actually arranged by his fiance Miller, uh, to give him a boost because he did miss a couple of tournaments after winning the UK. He was feeling as though he needed a bit of a break from snooker, but I think, as he put it, he's had a reset His game is clearly in great shape. He proved that at the Tour Championship. And I just think all the ingredients are there. He's in the bottom half of the draw, so he'd have to potentially get past Judd Trump in the semifinals. I mean, that's projecting a long way forward, obviously, and all sorts of things can happen and will happen at the Crucible, as we know. But if I had to pick one player right now, I think it would be Neil Robertson. Okay. And uh, Neil, the same or similar question to you. And I just wonder, because the formats now in snooker, the majority of the competitions are a lot, lot shorter, you know, best of seven, some best of fives as well. World Championship hasn't changed at all. First round is the best of 19. Do you think the days of a player outside the top 16, and I know someone like Stuart Bingham, of course, is outside it currently, he's got a qualifier. But by that, I mean maybe a first-time winner, a Joe Perry, um, and an Ali Carter, you know, a, a Zhao Zingtong, a Michael Holt, do you think the days of that kind of win have gone because the levels are so great nowadays? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I'm never going to say never because it happened in 2005 and I think that that same argument was being made then. You know, when Terry Griffiths won in 79, people said, well, that's not going to happen again. And, and actually, when Sean Murphy won it, it was a bit of a shock, but we all knew what a great player he was. And, you know, it was a surprise. Judd Trump, as a qualifier, nearly won it in 2011, but he just won a ranking event. At the moment, in the qualifiers, I wouldn't have thought anybody that has been there enough times was going to do it. It's going to have to be someone young and 
who improves dramatically. I guess if you're going to get it now, someone like um, Joe Yulong perhaps could, could go all the way, but you've got to look at their all-round game. Right now, there's, you've got to have a game built for two and a half weeks, and that's why your Kyron Wilsons and your Barry Hawkins have done very well over the years. Of course, neither have ever won it, but they've both been in finals. You've got to have a game that lasts duration. So I don't really see that there are that many players who can win it. You know, Philip mentioned Neil Robertson. Clearly, he's won it before. He's been a disappointment a few times. So I don't think it's going to come from too far reaches down the ranking list. It's all right saying, OK, well, they can win it. But what about if, if a qualifier got to the one table setup? That would be quite something in itself. You know, and uh, going beyond that and then winning another, what is it, uh, 35 frames, whatever it is you need to win at that point. Yeah, 35. That's going to be very difficult for somebody new. Um, it would have to be someone maybe slipped out of the higher echelons, maybe like Bingham, like you mentioned, who could do it. It's going to be one of the top boys. It's going to be Judd Trump for me. I think he's going to win it again this year. Now, obviously, it's a young man's sport, and uh, you've not only got 17 days of crucible action, but you've got the qualifiers beforehand if you are going to make it all the way through. And, of course, four people that we know always make it to finals weekend are Dave Henn and Joe Johnson, and you two. And I look at both of you, and I don't think fitness. So how are you both going to cope with so many days of work ahead of you? You first, Philip. <laughs> uh, we'll be all right. Listen, we'll be all right. Listen, what we're doing is not coal mining, is it? We're, we're enjoying snooker. Occasionally, the matches are a bit long, and, and you think, well, that was, uh, that was a long day. But um, I, I genuinely feel lucky to be working on it, and I think that's the best attitude to have. There's a lot, lot of people that would, if, if, if any of us ever decided enough is enough, there's always going to be someone to jump in to the commentary box and take over, aren't there? Let's be honest. Yeah, I absolutely echo that. Um, it's a privilege to cover this tournament more than any other. I mean, the whole snooker circuit is is terrific and there's so many interesting stories and subplots throughout the season, but there's nothing like the crescendo of the World Championship and it never disappoints. There is always high drama. Even without a crowd last year, we saw two of the most extraordinary matches in the history of the game, perhaps the most extraordinary semi-finals. Uh, back-to-back with those uh, remarkable climaxes. So, yeah, can't wait for it all to get underway. Well, listen, I'm sure you'll do a wonderful job. Don't tell Dave and Joe, but you know you two are my favourites. You know that, don't you? We knew that already. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but you did tell Dave and Joe that because they told us. Oh, I'll tell them exactly the same, that they're my favourites and not you. Listen, boys, I'm a big fan of your work. Keep it up and uh, enjoy those 17 days as well. Thanks so much for your time. Well, from two of the very best in the commentary box to arguably the greatest ever on the bays. Time now to catch up with the six times and defending snooker champion of the world, Ronnie O'Sullivan. And I'm delighted to say joining us now on the podcast is the greatest player ever to pick up a snooker cue and, of course, defending snooker champion of the world, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Ronnie, lovely as always to speak to you. How are you feeling with the world championship just around the corner? Yeah, um, I feel all right, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's, it's no secret. It's not my favourite tournament last year. It was a bit better because obviously it was um, not so much smothering going on. So, yeah, and I was kind of uh, enjoyed last year and, you know, this year's been okay. But, yeah, looking forward to looking forward to Sheffield, but also looking forward to a bit of a break at the end of it as well, you know, just to... It's been a hard... Not a hard season. I can hardly say it's been hard. I'm just saying I've played quite a lot for me, which is which is what I wanted to do. So, you know, I feel like I've, I've completed a mission in many ways 
to try and play a full season, which probably wouldn't have been possible um, had COVID not happened. You know, it allowed me to to play, and you know, the, the travelling was was always the problem, um, and, and not having to fly around the world six times in the space of three or four weeks made that possible. You know. Ronnie, of course, it's been a strange old season with most of the matches being played at Milton Keynes. How did you cope with that? Did you enjoy playing there? Did you enjoy going there most weeks? Was it fun or not? You seem to think it was there every other week. It was actually a tournament going on every day. Um, there, there wasn't a day where there wasn't any snooker, so it was just literally... Um, and at one point, we had snooker and darts there. Um so it was like you had two sports all at once. So that that was kind of a bit weird. Um, but the venue as itself was okay. It was just the hotel I didn't really like, to be honest with you. Um, and, and as a pundit, I found it really good because it doesn't matter because you you just there's you know you haven't got no waiting around. But you know if you had to do a lot of waiting around at Milton Keynes where the where the venue was, it's it's not the best place to sort of. Fill your time up, if you know what I mean. You're on a, like, a retail park at the end of the day. And, you know, it's, it's like at least like in Sheffield, you can go for a walk, go out, you know, you can, you can break your day up. But, but there, it was pretty, pretty tough, you know. So the venue was fine. It was just, just the hotel and the facilities, the lifestyle of being there just wasn't, wasn't great, you know. And we're very lucky at um, the World Championship this year because eventually for the final we will have capacity crowding it builds up actually over the 17 days but of course you've been playing the whole season without a crowd have you got used to that do you find it easier is it worse no I didn't did, like I say you know, it didn't make it didn't make, 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 make no difference to me really I don't think it made any difference to anybody I think the people that have won have won because they played really well and deserve to win the people that have lost just haven't played good enough to win you know so yeah, I think I think crowds coming back is good, good anyway. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's it's uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Um, how is your game at the moment? When have you been most happy with your game throughout the season? I think the happiest I was with my game was the Irish. I thought I played pretty decent there all week. I think the best week I had playing wise was in Wales. Um, I thought I was playing well going into the UK Championship, but then I. I had a 55-mile-week running week and I just crashed and burned at the UK and I literally was absolutely battered. So I was disappointed that I'd, that I'd, that I'd, that I'd done that, to be honest with you, um, and, and not and not give the UK, because I was playing well at that point. You know, I was playing really well. And then once the Scottish happened, I sort of lost my way a bit with a tip and my performances wasn't great. You know, a miracle getting to the final. Hey, you know, come back to the new year. I, t- I took three or four weeks off after that. And then, you know, I've kind of enjoyed my, my snooker up until the Welsh. Uh, Higgins gave me a bit of a good hiding. Um, but yeah, I've enjoyed the, the little best of three tournaments. You know, I've, I've enjoyed just playing and just being, being able to just see where my game's at, you know. So every tournament has not been about winning. It's been more about where's my game now compared to where it was last week. Well, I've taken three weeks off now. I wonder where my game is now compared to where it was three weeks ago. Okay, n- not too bad, you know. And, and you know, because you're playing a bit more regular like I was, I, I felt like I wasn't at so much as a disadvantage when I was playing, you know, because before I'd take six, seven weeks off, and there'd be like six, seven tournaments, you know. So when I did come back, I was so far off the pace that it took me like two or three tournaments to, to even have, a, you know, a chance to compete, really. So, yeah, it was... Um, 
it's been it's been a kind of nice year in a way because I feel like I've, I've had half a chance whenever I played. Uh, you mentioned John Higgins there. It seems that everyone's been hitting a bit of form of like John Higgins has been playing wonderful snooker on his first ranking event since 2018. Um, he played you in the semi-final of the Masters, played some of the best snooker I've seen John play for a long, long time. We know how good Judd Trump is. Neil Robertson has hit form again. Um, when you're talking about great players, Sean Murphy's name is always going to be in the equation, as is Mark Selby. It seems really, really difficult, probably more difficult than most years actually going into the World Championship to pick a winner. Who's impressed you this season, Money? Obviously, uh, I think the best player has been obviously Judd. Um, won more than anybody else. He's played more than anybody else, you know. Um, but definitely him and Neil, without a doubt, there's, there's only them two really that have been playing to like the super, super high levels. You know, John played fantastic in that tournament. But if you look at Judd and Neil, when that, you know, probably Neil's played, I don't know how many events he's played, but if he's played 10 events, I reckon in five of them he's played outstanding snooker, you know. So 50% of the time when he turns up, he's playing like, you know, winning snooker, you know, like, you know, he's unlucky in the English Open against Judd. It was a fantastic final. For me, the UK from start to finish, I didn't watch much of the final. I heard it was a bit of a grind. But up until the final, he was just, you know, sh- you know, just flying past opponents comfortably. Um, again, in that tournament last week, he played brilliantly. And, and then he took a bit of a gap off in between the UK and and that, so, you know, pretty much every time he's got his cue out of his case, he's been, like, you know, playing like unbelievable snooker. So, yeah, him and Judd probably are the two. And it's, and it's interesting because one's played in everything and one hasn't played in everything. And yet, like, who's, who's going to, who's, who's, who's sort of, um, like, build up to the World Championship is going to work better? The guy that's played less than pick and choose or the guy that played lows and, sort of like, you know, been on it, you know, from the word go. Uh, someone, of course, that did pick and choose this season is, uh, is Neil Robertson, who's just had a fantastic season, actually. He seems to be back to his best. Can you put your finger on, Ronnie, as to why he's only won one world title in his career so far? And that one was over 10 years ago. Uh, what happens at Sheffield is, is if you get on a good run, you, you, you seem to just win matches every year. And you got to go final, win, semi-final, final, like whatever. It sort of comes like, sort of like, it comes like a, a run in itself. Um, but then it can go the other way as well. So if you if you don't do well, I think Higgins won it for one period. Did make make a make a quarterfinal for like seven eight years. I mean, John Higgins not making a quarterfinal world champion seven eight years. You could have got any price you want down the bookies. Um, I'd done the same, you know, from two thousand thirteen to two thousand twenty one. Didn't make a make. A, semi-final um, and Neil Robertson's the same and I just think every every player goes through a little phase like that in their career you know at Sheffield where they just don't seem to to, to be able to get to the latter stages but I think at some point that will change for Neil and when it does I think you'll see him win one get to a final and you know a couple of finals maybe like three finals on the, on the spin you know because his game is built to do well at Sheffield you know and I think over the years, he's, he's added to his game. And I think now he's like, he's like taking over from John Higgins, I believe, in, in the player that has the best all-round game. You know, he plays the safety very well. His temperament's brilliant. His scoring's unbelievable. His potting is just frightening. His Q-action is, like I said, I've never seen anyone with a Q-action as well as that. So, you know, when you put all that into, you know, if you're baking a cake and you put 
all that in it, you're going to come out with like a Michel Roux bloody cake. You know, you're going to go like, wow, this tastes amazing. So, you know, he's got a lot going for him um, and he's blessed in many ways, you know, like with that technique of it, you know, because it makes the game a lot easier. You know, a lot of people, you know, most of us have to struggle with this game where him, he just gets down and just bang balls in for fun, you know, like they're over the hole. One player, of course, Ronnie, that sadly won't be going to the Crucible this season is Jimmy White, who lost to Stephen Hendry in the first round of the World Championship qualifiers. Did you watch it? Did you see it live on Eurosport.co.uk? It's an aggregate of a frame, you know. I watched the start and then I watched a little bit after the interval and then I watched a little bit towards the end. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't watch the whole match. Um, but I, I didn't really want to watch the whole match because I knew that, I knew it was a horrible match for both, you know, more so for, for Jimmy. Because obviously Jimmy's been putting the work in and, you know, he's um, been on the tour. You know, Hendry come in, hadn't played for years. You know, n- nothing to nothing to lose, really. And, you know, you could see Hendry was a bit more relaxed out there, whereas Jimmy looked really tight. And it's a horrible match for Jimmy, really. You know, to, if he'd played somebody else, he probably doesn't put that, you know, play that. You know, I've seen the whole match, so I can't comment on it. But just by, by going by what Jimmy said and what everyone else said, you know, he didn't. He obviously didn't play his best. But I think if he would have been playing somebody else, like myself or someone, he would have probably played really well. You know, so yeah. You know, I wouldn't read too much into that. You know, I thought Jimmy. I wouldn't read too much into that. It's just not a nice match for him to have to play first round of the World Championships. You know. No, I, I listen. I agree with you. I watched it all, and everything you said is spot on. Um, that defeat for Jimmy means he drops off the tour. He may have to go to Q School, or he may be given him another wild card. Um, Stephen Andrew said afterwards that perhaps he takes the game a little bit too seriously and he should just enjoy it a bit more. What advice would you give to Jimmy? And I'm guessing you want to see him remain on the tour as well. I think Stephen's bang right. You know, uh, I, I, I like what Stephen's got to say. You know, even about his own performances. You know, I think I think he he has a pretty good judgment call. You know, like just listen to him as a pundit. You know, he's he's, he's pretty much on the money all the time. And you know, Stephen's. You know, he's been through his problems with snooker as well. And he's like, to come back, you kind of need to have a little bit of a different perspective. Um, and like Stephen said, he said, if I start getting good and I start like, playing better, he said, you know, my expectations are going to arrive, raise a bit. And that, you know, and that's, you know, he's looking at it the right way. But I just think with Jimmy, it's, it's really difficult because I think if he looks at someone like Mark Williams, that should be like, if I was Jimmy White, I'd be looking at Mark Williams going, right, he looks like he's enjoying it, you know. Like, do I want do I want to look like I'm enjoying it and playing it, irrelevant of the result? And if I do, then I've got to go out there and I've got to, I've got to start swinging at shots. I've got to start getting down, playing at a higher speed, a higher tempo, just just refuse to overthink any situation. You know, if I see a safety shot on, play the safety shot. If I see the pot, play the pot. If I see the, in the balls, it might be the wrong shot, but at least play the first, get in the habit of playing the first shot that you see. Because otherwise you, you, you're in danger of overthinking and, and, and then building it up and then, you know, you just, and then, and then it becomes like you start thinking about your technique and then you start getting jabby and then you start, you can't get through the ball and, and then you're like, and the game becomes really difficult. You want to try and get in a place where the game becomes easy, you know, so, and to make it get easy, you've got to sometimes just throw your cue at the ball and just come out swinging and, and play like as if you've got nothing to lose instead of feeling like you've got everything to lose, you know. Okay, well, listen, let's talk about you. As I mentioned the first time, you've gone back to Sheffield as defending champion for, what, since 2013. 
I just wonder how you're going to feel as you enter the arena on that very first Saturday as defending champion. How are you feeling now about it? Are you nervous? Are you apprehensive? Are you looking forward to it? What's going through your mind? Not nervous at all, you know. I've, um, I've, I've had a, a great season. I've enjoyed playing. Um, you know, everything's really good. I'm excited. You know, like, like I say, you know, for me, you know, like the difference between me and someone like Hendry, like Hendry's like focus. I go to the venue, I want to play. For me, I go to a tournament. It's like, have I got my running route sorted? Yeah, okay, great. Have I got my restaurant sorted? Yeah, great. Okay, well, I'll, you know, I can deal with a snooker. Do you know what I mean? Whatever it throws at me, I'm all right because I've got them two things in place, you know. So snooker becomes like a, you know, something I just do because I'm there. You know, if I play great, brilliant. I'm really like super enthusiastic about plans and continuing and trying to go as far as I can in the tournament. If I'm not playing great, I know I'm not a grinder and there's no point in me doing what Jimmy was seems to be doing, which is trying to grind it out, trying to like, you know, take my time, trying to like, you know, really get focused, really over practice. And, you know, you won't see me on the practice table before a match ever, you know, because I don't want to go on there. I don't want to, I don't want to know how I'm playing 10 minutes before I go out. I, you know, I've got, I've got nine frames, 11 frames, whatever it is. You know, the first frame, if I don't get a shot, I can clear up the colours. That's that's all I need to know. You know, I'd rather find that when I'm there. And I think, you know, with, with that type of attitude and the way you approach it, it's, it's a lot easier to to, 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 to to deal with, you know, because, you know, otherwise it becomes becomes tough, you know, you, you, you know, because it's a tough sport anyway. So in some ways you just got to find like that happy medium, if, if that makes sense. Well, it wasn't that long ago that you last won the World Championship, of course, because of the COVID times we're currently living in. That was, what, August of last year. And um, when we started, of course, at the Crucible, some fans were allowed in. Then halfway through, they weren't. And then for the final, they were. This year's slightly different. It's more of a test event for the government. So round one, we've got 33% of capacity allowed in. And it goes up to 50% for round two. The quarterfinals onwards is 75%. And then... For the final, we have hopefully, fingers crossed, 100%, just under 1,000 people in for each session. Um, I just want to get your views on how you feel about that. And also, I know your mum was really ill with COVID. So how is she doing as well? Yeah, that's if you get to the final. So please, God, you, you get to experience that. Um, but yeah, she's fine. My mum, she's made a really good recovery. So that's great. You know, considering she's she only got half a lung. So, you know, it's... Uh, Last thing she needed was COVID, you know. So yeah, miracle that she's kind of come through it, which is great. Um, but yeah, listen, I, I mean, I, I haven't got a problem with crowds. I just, I just, I had a problem with being smothered, you know, and people getting too close to me. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not down with that, you know. And so you know, as long as they can control the crowds outside the crucible, it's not so much in the crucible because you know you should be at a, a safe enough distance, hopefully to. To not be close enough, so that's 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 that should shouldn't be an issue. But it's just like you know, how do you get from the hotel to the venue, and how do you control the fans not getting too close to the players and smothering them and getting on top of them and trying to get selfies and get autographs and you know we've you know I think we all accept that the two meter rule is the safest thing for everybody. It shouldn't be too difficult to implement, but you know I think it's not up to the player. To, to, to keep the distance from the fans. That's up for World Snooker to try and put something in place so the players don't have to sort of deal with, you know, an overexcited fan or someone that's a bit pissed up and he's just been getting boozed up and he's happens to see, like, when a snooker player come out of the venue and thinks, oh, it's all right to go up and cuddle him and kiss him. 
you know, it's, it's not all right to do that, you know, and I don't think the players should be there to have to fend for themselves. You know, they need to provide an environment where it's safe for them to get in and out of the venue from the hotel. And then, you know, obviously when they're not playing their match, you know, you've got to be, you know, like we were told last year, don't go out, don't be silly, keep, you know, stay away from people. That that should, should be the rule for obviously the next two years, really, you know, until we fully understand the full implications of what capable of doing to people. So, you know, obviously people's safety, and, it, and it's, it shouldn't be a lot to ask uh, for the players to have that level of protection, you know, when they've got to play their match or when they've got to come in the crucible. Find a way to make that route from the hotel to the venue, you know, where they haven't got to worry about being smothered by someone that's either had too much to drink or they're very excited and they just can't, you know, hold themselves back from, from coming up to you and, and getting, in your, getting in your space, you know? Mm. Uh, if you do get to the final, of course, you'll be trying to equal Stephen Hendry's record of seven. Uh, last time out, you equaled Ray Reardon and Steve Davis with six. Where does that win rank in terms of the previous five for you, Ronnie? Uh, probably not up there as like one of my, my best performances, to be honest with you. you know, but, I, but if I had to go in order, it'd go 2012, 2013, probably 2001, 2004. Or maybe 2008 was a good one. So, yeah, and then probably the, the, the one-on-one last year was probably my weakest performance in, 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 in comparison to the other, other, other times that I played there. Um, but probably a, dif- a different player last year to what I was in 2001, a bit more experience. Obviously, the work I've done with Steve Peters. So, you know, I'm probably less reliant on having to play well. I, I kind of probably last year allowed myself to play well in patches. Uh, the consistency wasn't there from from session to session, but you know I was able to compete and scrap and and stay in stay in I stayed in matches last year, whereas you know maybe 15, 20 years ago I would have sabotaged and and probably gone for a few too many shots and and, and lost the match before it even was over, really. Ronnie, looking at how you finished up the tournament, your quarterfinal against Mark Williams, you were 7-2 down. You came back to 8 or eventually won that one, 13-10. The semi-final against Mark Selby was just, you know, it must have been so difficult for you to get through mentally. And then, of course, you go into a final against Kyron Wilson as favourite. How, how difficult or easy is it for you to deal with the mental side of the game when you're going through all of that? Yeah, I went in there like at first thinking, I just don't want to get hammered in the semi-final. And then when I went up, 5-2, I thought, you know what, played all right. You know, I didn't play great. Mark, Mark wasn't at his best. And then the second session, he kind of got on top of me a bit. First session, he was a much better player, but I managed to stay within touching distance. Um, and then and then really, I just kind of like set myself, coming into that last session, to try and, try and make the score look a bit respectable. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, just try and sort of, when I got to 13 all, I kind of relaxed a bit. So I thought, okay, well, if I lose 17 13, it's not such a terrible scoreline. Um, because I felt like, you know, if it was a boxing match, they probably would have stopped it. They probably said, look, you know, you took him too many blows, you know, it's, you know, probably not worth you carrying on. So, you know, but it's not a boxing match, you know, it's played to the last frame. And, um, you know, I kind of found three frames from nowhere. So, you know, I was like, you know, I, I don't know where that came from, you know, probably just just because it was at the Crucible, you know, like I say, you know, sometimes it takes a special venue and special occasion to find that form, you know. If that was at Milton Keynes, I probably don't play like that, you know, but because it's the Crucible, it's got that sort of feeling to it. It's a bit like Augusta at golf, you know, strange things happen there on the second night of the final day, you know, and it's, 
you probably wouldn't get that at your Abridge golf course or Abridge golf course. You know, you know, you need you need the surroundings and, and that to, to produce that type of stuff. And the Crucible is 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 why there's been so many fantastic matches. And like you say, not just one semi final, both semi finals were, 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 were ma- so dramatic, really. Yeah. And then the complete opposite for you in the final against Curran, where you were hot favourite to win it. You got off to a great start. You led seven, uh, six two after the first eight frames. How much did that win mean to you after years without success at Sheffield, Ronnie? I think once I've made the semis, though, and you get to the one table setup, it's like I said, you know, once you've done that, then you kind of feel like you've had a successful tournament. Do you know what I mean? You know, it's, it was great to go into the final, win it. And, and when you get to the final, it's it's such a letdown if you don't win it because you put so much into like 17 days to then like come away with basically nothing. You know, you're like, all right, you get a check, but you know, no one remembers anyone that really comes second. It's all about, you know, getting the W at the World Championship. So, you know, I would have been really probably a bit gutted if I'd have lost that final because, you know, it's you know, it's just like a bit of been the masters you lose in the final, you go, all right, seven days, you know, I've had a good tournament, you know. But 17 days is a, it's a long way to go to, to not get the keys, if that makes sense. So, you know, I was, um, I was pleased to, 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 to get the win, you know, and, and pleased that I finished it off pretty well. You know, on the final day, I played a good afternoon session, which was which was pleasing, you know. Yeah, I like your terminology there, to not get the keys after 17 days. I can't believe it's 20 years since you got the keys for the very first time in Sheffield. I mean, that seems like a lifetime ago. Can you remember how special it was to finally become champion of the world because everyone knew it was a question of when not if with you yeah everyone was like when but I was like I was more if you know I didn't I never I never I didn't ever think it was going to come you know I never I never I always felt that if I'd have continued playing how I was playing from the age of 18 to now I might not have ever won the world championship so I've had to like develop my game over the years you know, I, you know, I had to change my technique, my cure action, to just to be a bit more, bit more disciplined, a bit more clinical, if you like. You know, so as if there was fifty to take, I would take it. You know, you know, I probably wasn't as explosive and and, and played these really fast five minute, twenty second frames, but I was making lots of seventies, eighties, sixties, seventies, and that's what you need to do to to win a tournament like Sheffield. So I had to develop my game over years, and and I think you know that's. That's what I, I was able to do. And, and you know, the first one was great because I worked with Frank Adamson and I, I kind of found some consistency through that. And then I worked with Reardon and that added a, a nice defensive side to my game. And then after that, I was kind of like, okay, well, I know what, I've, I've, I've moved my game on there to a position where it's, it's good enough to, to, to withstand all types of opponents, you know, the long duration sessions, you know, and, and then from 2008 onwards, I sort of, um, I've had some, you know, I've had some great performances um, at Sheffield. Like, and then, like I say, like 2012, working with Steve Peters, so that added another sort of dimension to my game. So like, I'd say, you know, it's taken years of developing as a player, um, not just technically, but mentally as well, you know. And just quickly, going back to that very first win in 2001, so you turned pro, in 1992 so it took you what nine years to win that first title and before that you were breaking records youngest player to get a 147 I remember you as British under 16 champion world amateur champion youngest winner of a ranking event when you won the UK the list goes on and on and on but it did take you nine years to win that first world title 
Did you feel as every year passed as though the pressure was building? Yeah, especially when John and Mark had already won it. So, you know, you've got two players there that I grew up with. And I'm not saying that, you know, um, yeah, I'm not saying it was because it's hard to watch two players that you, you know, John was the first. I would have liked to have been the second, you know. I didn't want to be the third player to win it because they'd already got theirs in the bag, you know. So it's like, in, in some ways, they were like ahead of the game, you know, and it's like I, I still had that monkey to get off my back. And, you know, once I'd got once I've got it off my back, I kind of like, okay, I can breathe now a little bit, you know what I mean? Because, you know, we we were kind of like trying to outdo each other in, in many ways, you know. And it's, you know, not 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 like, oh, I've done better than you. It's like, you know, it was just like a healthy relationship, a healthy rivalry that the three of us had because we, we grew up each other, you know. We, the stories would travel down from Scotland and Wales all the way down to London. I'm sure the stories from London would make their way up to Scotland and Wales. And we, we knew about each other. We, did, we didn't see each other a lot, but we knew. We knew what the others, you know, what, what, what they was up to, you know. We kind of, like, push each other on, I think. Ronnie, you won't become the oldest world champion if you are successful after 17 days. Only Mark Williams and John Higgins can beat Ray Reardon's record, but you can equal Stephen Hendry's record of seven world titles. At the back of your mind, are you thinking about that? Are you thinking about a seven, an eight, or even a ninth world title? No, because like, like I say, if I get to seven, I'd be like, oh, well, do you think you can beat the record? And, you know, if you ask me if I can win another one, probably highly unlikely. And it, so, so then even if I do win another one, it's like, well, can you win another one after that? So if one's highly unlikely, then two's definitely really unlikely. So I don't sort of like get caught up in that sort of stuff. I'll, I'll go there and I'll give it my best. And let's just say if I don't win it this year, I could win it next year. You know, I just I just always know that, you know, as long as I'm enjoying it and I'm playing, you know, and it's like timing sometimes, you know, being in the right place at the right time, put the right amount of work in, right amount of effort, pace yourself well. You know, good form is always just around the corner, you know? Mm. All right, well, listen, Ronnie, always a pleasure. You know, I'm a huge fan of yours. I can't wait to you defend your world title at Crucible. Thanks so much for your time and joining us on the Break Podcast. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Nice one, Andy. Well, there you go. That's it for now. We hope you enjoyed episode two of The Break. Remember, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your platform of choice. If you can, we'd love you for it. And, of course, don't forget it's eurosport.co.uk and the Eurosport app to watch live and exclusive coverage of the World Snooker Championship qualifiers from Monday, the 5th of April, all the way through to Wednesday, the 14th of April. We'll be back on the break in a week's time after the draw has been made for a full preview of round one. But from myself, it's goodbye. Thanks for downloading and thanks for listening.